Hello and welcome to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a podcast about our deepest values, the stories that shape us and how we can build understanding and empathy across our many divides. Every episode I speak to someone with some kind of public voice, novelists, politicians, archbishops, artists, activists, and I explore with them what they've learned about navigating difference, a skill I think you'll agree we all need in these divided times. I am unashamed to say that I absolutely love it when someone leaves us a review on their podcast app. A recent one called us a wee podcast with a big heart, and that made my day. So thank you, whoever you are who left that. Please do send episodes to friends, rate us, or even leave us a review. We're currently ad-free. We don't even have a Patreon, so it's a really great way to support the project. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Dina Nayeri. Dina is a novelist and also the author of non-fiction book, The Ungrateful Refugee. We spoke about her childhood in war-torn Iran, refugee hostels in Rome and eventually in Oklahoma, why many refugees feel the need to show they were a good investment, the nature of storytelling and more. I really hope that you'll think it's a great listen and that you enjoy it. Dina, I am going to ask you about what you hold sacred, which always feels a quite intense place to start. Uh, so before we go right there, I just would love to know how that word sits with you. Is it familiar? Is it foreign? Did it feel warm or did it feel off-putting? Hmm. Wow, that's an interesting part of it. When you know, when you said it just now and when people say that word to me, I often have a few very distinct memories. And even though the word to me actually is something quite, you know, lovely and spiritual and and takes me kind of into my own world, I actually, the the moments that I remember are moments where the word was used to indict me in some way, you know? So for example, moments where other people will say, well, do you not hold this sacred? Do you hold nothing sacred? You know, is not, is uh, as, as if the thing that was most important to them not being sacred to me meant that I did not have my own definition of sacred or that I didn't hold anything sacred. So um, I think in some ways it's a, a quite a biting word to me because of the ways in my past that it's been used. That is so helpful mm-hmm. because it, one of the reasons I ask the question and I've, you know, framed a whole podcast around it is it feels to me like these deep values are one of the unspokenness of them is one of the things that drives our divides because we assume that everyone else holds the same thing sacred or we're not even fully conscious of the things that we hold sacred, but someone is transgressing them. And therefore, maybe they hold nothing sacred or, you know, they're they're sort of morally bankrupt. And naming that these deep principles are unspoken and we can start from quite different places Mm -hmm. feels like a good way of building empathy. So that's really helpful. Exactly. And not only just all the differences between what we hold sacred, but how we treat a sacred thing. You know, I think in many instances of, you know, the lobbying of this accusation, do you hold nothing sacred, was in moments where the person was wondering why I wrote or talked about something, you know, and, and, you know, how can you not hold that sacred? And, and to me, actually, that is exactly what you do with the sacred thing. You preserve it, you write about it, you capture it in your, in your point of view into a piece of art. So like the assumption of what you might do with something sacred is also just wide, widely varying. And I find it baffling when people think 
sacred things have to be kept, um, you know, by their nature, completely hidden or private or, you know, um, and I think some things that are sacred are, but, or should, but I, I think we also vary really widely with how we might treat something sacred. So what came up for you? You know, you've been had a bit of time to sit with the question about what do you hold sacred or what are your sacred values? Uh, did anything come to mind? Yes. Well, I mean, for me, the thing that keeps coming back to me is kind of this intersection between my creativity and my freedom. And at that intersection, I think, sits my voice and my point of view and my very singular lens on the world. And to be allowed to have that, I am, um, you know, often these moments of clash on the, you know, question of what is sacred or what should be sacred. It just has to do with like, it. part of the question that you asked, you asked, you know, what would you absolutely hate to have encroached on or what is something you couldn't, I guess, live without? And, 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 and it is that it's the idea that I can't have a perspective or a point of view of um, something and there, and that somehow the truth rests away from the way that I perceive it you know, that there is some immutable truth that is separate from how I experience the world and, and that that is sacred and I must somehow succumb to it. To me, what's sacred is my, my lived experience of the world, how I view it, and then how I turn it into art and creative work. So it's, it's the intersection between my freedom and my creativity and, you know, my, how I make sense of the world. And those things are all sacred. And it's also extremely important that I be the one to have control over them. So my agency is also, um, you know, something that's sacred to me. And I think all of these things are born out of growing up, you know, in one uh, one sort of religious household. And then my mother converted from Islam to Christianity and then another sort of religious household. And, and, and all of these kind of mandates of how you should think and what you should, um, what you should hold dear and what you should love and respect and fear. And, and I think ultimately, you know, I reject all of those because I hold sacred my autonomy and my ability to make sense of the world for myself. And, 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 um, and also most importantly, my ability to turn that into some kind of art and to speak for the world. Thank you. I'm sure we'll come back to those threads when we talk about storytelling and the voices of refugees and various other things. But I want to hone in on those childhood experiences. And I always find this a really useful way of just locating people in their story, of acknowledging how formative our stories are, particularly of um, our early years. And with, with a lot of guests, I can ask quite a broad brush question about their childhood. But I think one of the defining things about your story is it's multi-part and multi-chapter. So I'll ask first, really, to, to, for you to tell us a bit about your childhood in, in Iran, in, in war-torn Iran, and, and what were some of the kind of formative ideas or, I guess, uh, just to paint us a word picture of young Dina in Iran? <laughs> okay. Um, well, I was born right around well, in the middle of the revolution in 1979. And at that, at that time, Iran um, was, you know, changing from a monarchy. The Shah was ousted, uh, that people had a revolution and the, um, you know, um, this religious clergy, this um, Muslim clergy came in and they took over the country and they made it a theocracy. Um, the revolution was actually not about that, by the way. It was about toppling the Shah, who was very... Um, uh, you know, he was an oppressive, um, you know, dictator also, but um, then the revolution itself was hijacked and so on. And so then we had another dictatorship. So um, shortly after that, Iran went to war with Iraq and I spent the first eight years of my life just also in the middle of war, bomb sirens everywhere, um, constantly running into basements, 
um, news all the time of other cities um, being bombed and neighborhoods demolished. Um, food rations, uh, that was an interesting aspect of my childhood, the fact that you had to go and find rations. And, and often when stores were short on certain items, um, they would even do this terrible little trick where they would bundle necessary items. So if you want, you know, a, a bottle of milk, you also have to buy a fly swatter or, you know, we would joke like if you, you want some eggs, you also need three anvils, you know, or some ridiculous thing that they wanted to get rid of. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was a, it was a tumultuous childhood. Um, it was full of, you know, the government was so... Um, always there in your living room, you know, because of the, this post-revolutionary time was also a time where a lot of people were, you know, um, randomly disappeared into the prisons or a lot of people were killed. A lot of people would, you know, tell on each other for misbehavior and that sort of thing. And people were afraid. And then in the middle of all this, my mother converted to Christianity. So then we became apostates. Um, and my mother became a criminal and she was taken to jail again and again. And, um, yeah, so it was it was um, never very secure, I think. And then we ran away when I was eight. And you initially were a refugee in Italy, is that right? But your dad couldn't go with you. Well, actually, initially we went to Dubai. So we, um, uh, my, we, the first thing we did to flee the country. I mean, it was all the details are in the book. They're very. There's too many to say here, but um, we got out of the country and we went to Dubai on um, a, a tourist visa. So it, it was um, kind of the easiest way to get out. And then we blew through our, you know, allowance of time that we could stay, our, our visa. And um, we became undocumented. And we stayed for a long time, you know, petitioning UNHCR and various other organizations to get some kind of, you know, help in becoming refugees. Um, and then soon the government of um, the United Arab Emirates caught wind that we were there illegally and, and they were threatening to send us back. So there was some quick action taken by UNHCR. We were declared refugees and then we were taken uh, to Rome to live in a refugee camp. I'm sorry, outside of Rome. This was um, in, a, in a village outside of Rome. Um, and that's the time when we were technically refugees uh, for, you know, um, a little bit less than a year and then we were taken to the United States. And if you're, if you're happy to, and I'm aware all of the things you're talking about very matter-of-factly will carry a huge amount of trauma with them. So mm -hmm. I obviously want to just respect your of um, agency and, and, how, and how much you share and how, but I would love to understand a little bit what that process was like of being a refugee, living in the hostel, and then um, the process of being granted asylum in America. Yeah. Well, I think for us, it was very different than it is now. In some ways, it was the same. I think one thing that all refugees share is this sense of constant dread at not knowing how long they'll wait. And so I think one of the defining qualities of that time for me was that, you know, we just didn't know. As soon as we arrived, I remember the first night we arrived in that um, uh, in that refugee hostel was... Um, it was dark and we were dropped off there and we didn't even know if they provided meals. And we just kind of sat there and we said, should we walk into town? Do we have enough money? And, and there was, um, you know, we just kind of sat on the bed, not knowing what we should do. And we were hungry. And, um, he, there was a knock on the door and it was this staff worker who had just, um, 
you know, been informed that we had arrived. And she said, uh, you didn't come down to dinner. And we said, what dinner? And she said, you know, we provide three meals here. And so she took us down and there was nobody in the canteen um, anymore because it was late. So, you know, they brought out some leftovers and we ate them in the dark and, and we were so relieved that they provide food because this is not the case in every, um, in every refugee camp. And, and so, um, we, uh, then the next day we met people, we met, um, all of the uh, refugees from, you know, they were from Russia and Romania and Poland and Afghanistan and Iraq and just uh, everywhere. And it seemed a lot of what people had in common in that camp is that mostly they were, um, somehow, I mean, they were all very well educated. I don't know if that's where they put the the political dissidents or, you know, um, but basically uh, we found the Farsi speakers and we started to talk about when we would get out of there, what the process would be, how long we would be there. And that was all of the talk from that day forward. It was just this constant waiting, this constant, will this be six months or will this be a year or will this be five years? And those are very, very different amounts of time. You know, your children will change in five years and they will become different people if they've sat in idleness for that that amount of time. And it happens to a lot of people today. Um, my mother refused to waste the time. So she went immediately and found a homeschool in a church in Rome. And these were homeschoolers who were Americans. And she said, um, we are not going to waste this time. We're going to find out what grade you guys should be in. And we're going to, you know, we're going to do some makeshift school. So this homeschool donated to us all their used workbooks for the particular years my brother and I were in. And my mother would sit all day erasing these workbooks, just erase, 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 and so hard that we could not see the stuff underneath. And so my brother and I did the first grade and fourth grade. I was fourth. He was first in those, using those workbooks. Um, and, you know, we would go to the school, to the homeschool in Rome. And the way that we did that is, you know, we couldn't afford to give up the meals that the camp provided. So we um, talked to this Afghan grandmother who's she was very, very old. And she talked to the same worker who had fed us that first night. And she would give all of our lunches to the grandmother at lunchtime. And then when we came home at dinner, she would give us those lunches and we would eat them. And then we would take the fresher dinners and we would make them into sandwiches, no matter what it was, whether it was, you know, like some kind of stewed beef or pasta or whatever, it would always go in the middle of some sandwich bread. And we would take it the next day to uh, Rome. We would hang them outside of a window of our room because we didn't have refrigerators in a plastic bag, just in the cold. And then uh, the next morning, they'd often be dewy and wet, but we would take them on the bus and and we would have those for lunch. And, and this was all of this, just like jumping through hoops, just so we wouldn't be waiting, just so we would have school. That was just so important because a lot of people languished in the not knowing and um, they became depressed. And, you know, we just we, we lived and we passed the time and we waited. And that's what it was like. Thank you. I hadn't ever really thought about that sort of deadening limbo time that so many people sit in. Um, you were eventually granted asylum in America and were sort of uh, ended up in a, a community, a sort of largely Christian community. And you write really movingly about the process of initially strong hostility 
mm-hmm. from those that you encountered and then slowly learning what kind of person you had to perform as in order to be accepted. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear a little a little tiny bit of that story and particularly where Christianity intersects because I know that um, in some ways the church embraced your mum with open arms because yes. she'd been a Christian convert and... Yeah. And had been and had suffered for it yes. and wanted to hear all about that, but it wasn't straightforward acceptance you received. Yeah, well, I think it was, I think it was at the time really the best and the kindest they could do. And I think the reason is because the way we, the way we give kindness is very much um, affected by what we can see and what is completely invisible to us, you know? And so I think there's a lot of ways that you can be inadvertently unkind with, with the most, the kindest intentions, you know, and, and I'll um, explain what I mean. The, because my mother was a Christian and because she was a convert and she'd suffered and, and, and it was the church who ultimately sponsored her to come to the, uh, to Oklahoma. Um, you know, yes, there was a, a, a big welcome in that respect. Um, there was a little bit of questioning at first, like in ways that I think really affected my mom, individuals just asking, well, you know, how is she a real Christian? You know, and so there was a lot of extra questions asked of her, I think, in an effort to really test her Christianity, which I think that was, um, I think that was really hurtful to her because of all that she'd gone through. But she kind of happily complied because she was so grateful. And, um, um, you know, and then there was this kind of parading out of this very traumatic story of our life again and again in you know, church settings. Um, And my mom was happy to do so because for her, I mean, I think it was such a triumph and she had had so much faith and she had, was on this high of being saved. I mean, she was literally going to be executed and now she was here um, able to start over. And so I think she was happy to offer up that story. For me, it was quite embarrassing because over and over again, it made me different. Um, And, um, and I think people were ready to receive that story. They wanted to hear it. It was exciting, but they wanted it in a certain way. There wasn't really that much room to to tell the story the way um, we might have wanted. And I don't know how my mother would have wanted to tell the story because she's such a devout Christian that I think she just, it was her nature to tell it exactly the way they wanted, which is this hagiographic journey of a faithful woman who was saved by God. But that's not really the most interesting story, I think, from my point of view or from a literary point of view or from, you know, kind of a telling it, a realistic story point of view. I mean, we had so much that we left behind. There was so much mist, so much sadness, so much um, that we would never see again. It, it was really bittersweet. And I find that bittersweet story very much more interesting. But there, I don't think anyone had much patience for us missing things at home. I think there was this understanding that America is by far better and that what we are, we are very lucky. And yes, we were very lucky. But I think that there has, it would have been more interesting to me and more welcoming to me if that, you know, you've been lucky was allowed to live beside, but, you know, there are things that you're clearly suffering. There are things you'll never see again. It's going to be hard in this way and that way and this way. I mean, this notion of like, well, you have to kind of buck up and do your best now, um, which I did. I think like I was absolutely obsessed in that time with proving myself. And and I wanted, I became obsessed with getting into Harvard and, you know, showing them what I could do. So I kind of feel like in many ways I can say this now because I bucked up, you know, as much as I could possibly buck up. Thank you very much. Um, and, and I did, um, what I was meant to do to prove myself. And so I feel like I can go go back and say, but you know what, you guys should have just let that be 
a part of a story and let the rest of the stuff come out too, because it's not so simple. It's not a story of just America coming to the rescue and a, a really a big hardship ending and then never being thought about again. Um, you know, these are human psyches and, and, and their entire lives left behind. And these, there are particular like ticks and traumas that will now stay with us forever and memories that will stay with us forever. And in many ways, we'll never be able to really find a home again. And these, these are tragedies. And, and I think it's, it's okay to be allowed to talk about them. That's not ungratefulness to be allowed to talk about them. And also, um, yeah, but, you know, I think, as I said before, it's all about what people are capable of, of, of seeing, because these are people who watched movies like Not Without My Daughter and China Cry and, you know, read the Bible. And so for them, those were good stories. And I think if you can watch a movie like China Cry or Not Without My Daughter and not see that it's a bad story, you know, um, then you won't know what you're missing, you know, I suppose. Um, I have that's to confess, a, I don't know either of those films, but I'm going to go. Yeah, go uh, these were, these were oh, uh, yes, I should say something about what they were. They were just these kind of um, faithful American, like a faithful martyr um, is, you know, oppressed by, so China cries about this Christian woman communist China and how she um, miraculously stayed pregnant for 12 months so that, you know, she could make it through and come to America or something. And then, and then, you know, it's, it's just a miracle story. It's, it's like kind of the Christian survives the bad, bad people story. And not without my daughter is set in Iran. And it's, it's about an American woman who marries an Iranian man and goes with her daughter to Iran. And she just got kind of gets trapped there because the whole family of this man just suddenly turn into demons and hobgoblins and they force her to stay and they won't let her daughter go. And so she, um, you know, she finds a way to smuggle herself and her daughter out of the country. Now, the thing is that this story happened. So there, but I believe there is a much more complicated and interesting way to tell the story than just this good and evil story. And, yeah. and if you've only heard good and evil stories, then, you know, then maybe that's you, you start to signal to people that that's the story they should tell um, and maybe reject inadvertently their more complex story. So I want to come on to that because you've written very powerfully about the stories that refugees are allowed to tell and 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 how hard it is for those voices to be heard. But I am going to ask what feels like quite a private question, which you are very um, empowered to ignore, <laughs> which is, and I, I'm obviously picking up some threads, but having come from a Muslim-majority country and being raised by a Christian mom, how, where do you sit now? How do you orient yourself to... Islam, Christianity, religion, God in yeah. general? Well, I mean, I'm pretty um, suspicious of, of pretty much all organized religions. I, I feel, um, I, I don't feel that I can quite say that I'm an atheist. I don't think, I, I think this is the question of God and a higher power is a mystery to me. And, and I know a lot of people who I respect, who have studied, who are, um, you know, scientific minded and have incredible educations that still struggle with this question. One of my, I mean, my, one of my teachers, writing teachers, Marilyn Robinson at Iowa is an incredibly spiritual woman. She's a Christian. Um, but at the same time, I'm really compelled by, you know, um, 
logic, you know, and by the things that are observable to us as human beings and, and, um, and, and, and science. And so I'm also not, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to say that I believe in a God, but um, I do believe, one thing I do believe is that aside from the fact that I'm, this is a, a question for me, it's a mystery for me, um, and I don't have to have an answer, is that whatever spiritual, spirituality, um, you know, exists and whatever, whatever, um, well, of course it, you know, it, it, it's private, that it is something um, to be experienced in solitude and, and to that, and it's absolutely related to art and create the creative drive, creativity, beauty in the world. Um, and, and so in that way, I do have a deep spiritual life because I have a deep um, uh, inner life um, and a creative life and an imaginative life. And those things are, are, you know, the sources um, and the products of my, my spirituality. And so I think that whatever we believe, Believe that has to be true. Um, I think the people who are uh, whose spirituality doesn't go inward; it goes outward, or it's it's too motivated and influenced by organized religions and by other people. I mean, there there's isn't a spirituality at all. It's dogma, and it's dangerous, and it's not very thinking. And and unfortunately, it's a kind of uh, religion and um, faith that practice that we're seeing a lot of um, in, in the world today. Thank you. I want to zoom out from um, the personal a little bit, although that's obviously a really false and unhelpful binary, uh, just to, to chew the fact with you about how our public conversations about um, people who are forced to move, you know, refugees, asylum seekers in particular, and how that conversation goes on and what's helpful and what's not. And something that you wrote really struck me about telling those stories. And one of the things your book does and, and many of your essays do, is to tell these stories of just from a personal perspective, your experiences. But you've said that the reason that's quite unusual to hear it in that way is not just about not new refugees not necessarily knowing the language or... Um, you know, being in survival mode and really not having the resources to be telling their own stories, but also being about storytelling culture. Mm -hmm. And you talked about having to ha had such a kind of inculcation in the American imagination that you would know how to this, tell the story of mm -hmm. a refugee in a way that could connect with an American culture. I'd love you to unpack that for me. Yeah, you know, I find it funny that everybody, that people think that people all tell their stories the same way. You know, it, it, it's funny in some movies and stuff, you know, you often have grandmothers sitting and telling a story and then the story kind of unfolds in cinematic fashion in the way, uh, you know, we're all used to, to hearing stories. But grandmothers don't tell stories that way and not every grandmother from every country tells a story the same way at all you know in fact I think if you could understand um Farsi and sat with like you know a village grandmother from Iran and listened to her story it would definitely not be the cinematic journey of an American you know um storyteller it would be something very different and perhaps boring you know we learn storytelling culture from the time we're little children um I I say you know one thing I talk about in the book is that you know when we were in Iran 
Well, first I should tell you, I talked to this uh, refugee kind of asylum lawyer who said that every time he spoke to Iranians, he has to do some extra training about storytelling because Iranians will never start at the beginning of, you know, a story. They will not start at the beginning of their journey or at the moment of danger. And they won't even start at the beginning of their own lives. They always start at the beginning of the universe. And he has to teach them that this is going to make, you know, Dutch asylum officers or French asylum officers or whatever, very suspicious. It sounds like you're lying. But Iranians grow up, you know, from the time that they're born, hearing stories that always starts with the same little rhyme. And that little rhyme is about the beginning of the universe. So, of course, they've, they've been trained to start at the very beginning. They've been trained also with a point of view that doesn't center their own story in the way American storytelling goes, you know. So it's like it zooms out immediately and puts their own lives in context in the, within the entire universe, you know. And I think that's interesting, but it makes them sound like liars to the Western listener. And so I and, and, it, and it doesn't make them compelling storytellers. I think even really fantastic and successful modern Iranian storytellers, like, for example, the, the filmmaker Kiarostami, right, who a lot of people love, who tells stories the Iranian way, has learned plenty about Western storytelling in order to translate those Iranian stories, keep them Iranian, but still, you know, enchant the Western listener. So... One big problem when West, when uh, people from the East tell their stories to people from the West at the gates is that they have no tools for moving that person, for showing them the human side of this, to sh- showing them all of the tragedy and, and all of the, the, the richness and the fullness of the lives left behind. And then at the same time, they've got this listener who doesn't care anyway. They've got a checklist. They've got a quota of how many people they need to reject. And they are looking for inconsistency and looking to catch them out in lies. So those two things combined makes this communication so fraught. And only the most prepared and educated and the ones with lawyers can actually get through it. You have done this. You've you've written beautifully and powerfully in lots of different ways about both your experience and the experience of refugees more broadly. And just reading before this interview, it struck me how actually even I, as someone who's a voracious reader of of fiction and nonfiction, and I hope attuned to global issues, had very rarely read this kind of first person narrative of someone who'd been a refugee and what that means for identity and what that means for underlying a constant fear or that sense of, as you said, of kind of having to perform to show that you were a good investment mm. you know all, all of those things were new to me so it I just wanted to affirm what you're doing but then say what what are the key things that you would love people to understand about the experience of a refugee you know what are the what are the sort of humanizing revelations that you're again and again trying to incorporate into your work? Well, you know, this is, it's interesting. Um, You should ask that because this is the reason I structured my book the way that I did. Because if you notice, the book is in five parts. So there's, um, you know, escape, there's uh, there's um, the refugee camps, then there's asylum, assimilation and cultural repatriation. And that is the arc of the refugees experience. But the reason I divided it into those parts is because each of those parts has a universal you know, equivalent, something we all go through that is just like that. So, for example, let's take camp, you know, the, the, there's waiting. 
There's the fact that every time power is exerted on any of us, it is done with waiting. I mean, think of all of the organizations or people that are more powerful than you. What do they do to show that power? You know, they make you wait. And so we've all suffered waiting. One of the um, pieces of literature that I used in this book was Roland Barthes' Lover's Discourse. There's a particular part about the lover who's made to wait and what that feels like and how the unreality and the kind of changing of time. And, and, and I think that is so, um, so very similar to the refugee experience, but it's also so incredibly universal. And think of, I think one thing that I, you know, in the middle of this pandemic, in the middle of these lockdowns and all of the fear and the loss that has happened, the one small silver lining in all this, I hope, is that here is an experience in which we all got to see what it's like to be a refugee because we were forced by these higher powers, these authorities to wait, to wait in our homes, wait for this, you know, virus to, um, to not, not pass, but perhaps, you know, um, not move so freely among our populations, to wait for the government to say you can go outside now, to wait for um, the rules to change. And, and some of us, you know, for long periods of time, couldn't send our children to school and couldn't work because of that. So um, the similarity of that for refugees is so obvious and, 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 and so ironic. And a lot of ex-refugees, former refugees like myself, we talk to each other about this, about how this is eerily like the old days. And I hope now that everyone's experiencing it, they'll maybe you know, stop and reflect on the fact that there are people that go through this all the time. And maybe that can make them a little bit more empathetic. So yes, there are universal elements to everything the refugees go through. And I think, I hope, I mean, in this book and and in, in other of their accounts that people find those points of connection, those points of recognition, um, so that they can try to maybe put themselves in that story a little bit more viscerally. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't talk to you about the shift that we have seen over the last few years. And maybe it's just been there and is now more visible, but certainly this sense of uh, rising disquiet or discontent um, in lots of nations around the level of immigration more generally, um, but often asylum seekers and refugees become the real flashpoint around that. And there's both the kind of measured policy conversations about resources uh, going on, which can be done more or less humanely. But there is very definitely, um, as far as I can see, a kind of easy dehumanising narrative that we fall into. And I saw just a little thing from a local paper in Kent the other day saying, this is why we talk about people drowning in the channel, people crossing the channel, not migrants drowning in the channel, not migrants, because that word migrant distances us more than it should. But one of the things I really valued about your writing is the way you are both angry at points, really angry Mm -hmm. about the hoops that refugees and asylum seekers have to jump through about the dehumanising asylum and refugee systems that nations set up, about this demand that refugees will always be grateful, about that need to be to perform forever to prove that you were investment, but also again and again trying to understand and empathise. And there's a, there's a line I want to, you to unpack for me where you say, um, everybody who approaches you with a hostile question, they're searching for a reason to keep loving and keep hoping. And maybe they don't realize that, but I believe it. I, I'd love you to just explain what you mean. I think, I think, um, 
as long as people are asking questions, you know, they, they are searching for something. And I, I do choose to believe in the, it, no, maybe not the good of eternal good of other people, but more in the human desire to connect and to love, which is primal and it's instinctive. And we are creatures who want more to connect than to separate. You know, yes, we are tribal creatures, but at the same time, like we are constantly walking around the world looking for points of connection with other people. So even a hostile question, even someone coming, you know, kind of at you with, you know, misinformation or asking for things, like, I don't think deep down in their hearts, they're looking or expecting for you to suddenly be like, oh, yes, you're right. You know, I think and maybe they're more, you know, consciously expecting some kind of antagonism. But I think the more human part of them, deeper part of them is looking for a story or a reason or some point of, 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 um, you know, familiarity or something to latch onto. And, and I think that's the thing that I want to give them, you know, a a story, uh, a, a something funny, a visceral experience, something human, something so, so human that they're disarmed. And I'm suddenly talking to that person deep inside who threw out that question past all of the hostility and past all of the rhetoric and past all all of the information, whatever that human inside is who who lobbed the question out or who even thought to talk to someone who's a refugee activist or a refugee. So, um, I, I mean, I believe that. I believe that. I know it's an extremely kind of sentimental and, and overly hopeful and perhaps childish way to think, but I have to continue to think that way about humans as a whole, especially humans that I don't know. I don't know why a person has become who they've become, but people aren't monsters. People are, uh, you know, completely good and completely bad. They are, they are complicated. And that is like, that's what I said at the beginning when I say I hate movies, like not without my daughter in China cry. Like I didn't grow up on those movies. I grew up on real literature. I grew up on excellent writing. And so I know I should know, you know, that there is no such a thing as a purely hostile person. And at the pit of everyone's heart is nothing but a desire to connect. I want to ask one final question, um, which is about for those listening, um, who want to be better at engaging across differences, at building empathy across our tribes. Um, what have you learned? And obviously the, the kind of key access axis that you've sat on is um, speaking between those who are native born and those who have been forced to leave their home. Um, you, you've said one very beautiful thing about continuing to believe in the sort of the potential for good under even the most hostile person. Are there other things, practical tips or just hard-earned lessons that um, our listeners could take and maybe even practice? The best thing that I think we can all do to just be better with each other, not just with refugees and with, um, you know, vulnerable people is just to, to approach everyone that comes into our lives with curiosity, you know, and, and to think about the, the, um, the vast and, 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 you know, long life that they've lived and all the many stories and all the many aspects of them that are not visible to us right then, you know, and, and, you know, can we make the time to find out? And then, and then I think our natural human instinct takes over and we find those points of connection and we find ways that to, to create beautiful moments because you, you, you're curious about someone and they'll tell you something about their past and you'll find something you have in common. And then you uh, build something based on that and, and you exchange stories and you exchange food and music and all of that stuff. And all of that is just the natural progression of a little bit of curiosity. 
Um, so that's what I say to people. And, 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 you know, I think, I think like, it's really very important to always be aware of each other's dignity. And I think when we haven't met someone who comes from another culture, who comes from trauma, it's very easy. We, we, all of our, you know, social rules are made to preserve our dignity. Right. But suddenly somehow that all crumbles down when someone comes from, you know, a war torn country or someone's a refugee. And part of the reason for that is because they do need us. They do need our charity. They do need our help. And and, you know, they don't speak the language. And for a while, they're not going to be, um, you know, contributing a lot to society. And so we just have to be patient and do and, and, and try to make those moments not humiliating for them and try to not, you know, rob them of dignity and, and trust that actually they are bringing with them a wealth of talents and a wealth of, of love and hope and desire to 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 um, to contribute something, and so that eventually they will, you know. And and so it's our job to facilitate that and make that process as as painless as possible. There's this charity I talk about in the book called Refugee Support that just really struck me, you know, um, as just absolutely wonderful. I mean, um, I, I spent a lot of time with them, but their whole thing was how do we change the way we give aid so that we don't rob the refugees of their dignity? So, you know, in refugee camps, we're often clothes and food were tossed out of the back of trucks at these people who were, you know, they had had full lives back in their whole countries. They were professionals. They were people with a lot of, you know, pride. And here they were having, you know, the wrong size jacket thrown in their face from the back of a truck. I mean, this was horrible. And uh, this this charity went around to from camp to camp, setting up grocery stores where people could choose their own items um, based on a point system, you know, and, and keep that dignity. And I think that was really wonderful. And one last thing I should say that in London, there's such a lot of charities that you can, um, you can join and you, that help, you know, people preserve their self of self, a sense of self. And uh, I'm a trustee of one of them called Host Nation. It's a, it's a befriending charity um, in which people, after they go through a background check are, um, you know, native born people are, are matched with a refugee that, that's in their neighborhood around the same age and gender and they can, um, you know, get together easily because they live close and and not just be, you know, a, ch- a charity giver, but someone in their lives, like a friend. They can get together, they can talk, they can invite those refugees into their groups of friends and make them a part of a community instead of just, you know, someone receiving some kind of help. Dina Nayeri, thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. Remember, sharing is caring, as my four-year-old says. So please do send this or another episode to a friend. Rate us on Apple Podcasts or my personal favourite, leave us a review. I really get a thrill when I see a new one pop up. Huge thanks to Abby Allison for research and production support and Emily Down for our visual identity. We are edited by Drew Hawley and our music is composed and arranged by Luke Stanley with vocals by Lizzie Harvey. The Sacred is a project of the Think Tank Theos and you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk.